Welcome to Valley 101 from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm your host, Kayla White. Today, we're diving into a topic everyone loves, food. Hi, this is Sarah. I live in Old Town Scottsdale, and my question for you is, what dish or dishes is Arizona known for? Sarah recently moved to the Valley with her husband from Chicago, a city known for its deep dish pizza and Chicago dog. So when they got here, they wondered, well, what does Arizona have? Producer Taylor Seeley set out to find the answer. Hey, I'm Taylor. And to answer this question about an Arizona state food, I asked you, our listeners, to share your thoughts and ideas. And you all delivered. Navajo tacos are so Arizona. I love Navajo tacos. I think it should be the chimichanga. I think Arizona's official state food should be tacos. I'd like to see a taco truck on every corner. Hello, Taylor and the Valley 101 podcast. Uh, In regards to what the Arizona official state food should be, I was going to say tacos, but then my wife properly corrected me and said it should be nopalitos, which of course is cactus. So I'll tell you right off the bat, Arizona doesn't by law have an official state food. But recently, a Valley High School student did propose an official beverage. New at 6, an Arizona lawmaker and a Valley student, they're hoping to make lemonade the official state drink. There's a bill at the state capitol that could make that happen. No other state has lemonade, and we grow a lot of citrus here. Five C's of Arizona. I remember learning that in, like, fourth grade. That's Garrett Glover, an 18-year-old from Gilbert. And while more than 20 other states have signed milk into law as their official beverage, Garrett wants lemonade to be ours. Oranges are also grown here. I like orange juice, but Florida already beat us to that one, so lemonade is a very good cultural staple. A lot of people just make lemonade stands on the side during summer, make some money. I felt like it was a good choice for Arizona because it's pretty hot here, and a lot of people drink lemonade during the summers. Garrett worked with his local representative, Warren Peterson, the state house majority leader, to get that bill pushed. At first, the Arizona legislature rejected it, but then they decided they'd give it a second chance and allow Garrett to make his case again at a later date. Who knows? By the time this episode airs, lemonade could be the official state beverage of Arizona. And I just have to add, that's a lot better than milk. I mean, come on. Now, you might be wondering, a state food? I didn't even know that sort of thing existed. To be honest, I'd never given much thought to it either. But once I started researching, I found that Arizona has a whole host of items it declares its own. For example, we have a state flower, the white saguaro flower. We have a state fish, the Apache trout. We have a state firearm, the Colt Single Action Army Revolver. And we even have a state neckwear, the bolo tie. But still, what about food? I mean, other cool cities have food they're famous for. 
Is this the best pizza in Chicago? We're gonna find out. Take Chicago, for instance. Famous for its deep dish pizza or the Chicago dog. Today we're going to be exploring Chicago's best pizza. Then you've got Philadelphia with the Philly cheese steak. We are going to Philadelphia in search of the best Philly cheese steak. For those of you who don't know what a Philly cheese steak is, it's basically an iconic sandwich from Philadelphia. I mean, for goodness sake, our neighbors to the east in New Mexico drop a green chili to ring in the new year every January. New Mexico has a 19-foot chili pepper dropping from the sky. The chili will be hoisted up 60 feet in the air. And then there's Arizona. What do we have to show for ourselves? Well, it turns out we do have something. Sort of two somethings. One of those is the Sonoran hot dog, a beef hot dog with bacon, tomato, mayo, beans, onions, and a bunch of sauces. It's particularly popular in Tucson. So for the sake of staying in the valley, I'm going to tell you about the other something. Meet the chimichanga. Now, if you haven't had the pleasure of eating a chimichanga before, let me explain. Picture your favorite burrito. It could be any burrito. A beef burrito, chicken burrito, heck, even a veggie burrito. Now, picture biting into that burrito wrapped in a giant tortilla. Pretty good, right? Okay, we'll rewind for a second. Imagine if you added the perfect crisp texture to the outside of that burrito. So you just have a little crunch before getting to that gooey, delicious interior. Well, that's what a chimichanga is, a deep fried burrito. And based on what everyone says, at least whom I've spoken to, to try a chimichanga is to love a chimichanga. You can even get chocolate-filled dessert chimichangas these days. And the best part is, everyone agrees, Arizona is the home of the chimichanga. But there is a dispute over who exactly in Arizona started it. Macayos is a local chain here in the valley. It was started by husband and wife, Woody and Victoria Johnson in 1946. When you walk into a location today, it's full of vibrant colors, there are fake toucan birds that hang from the ceiling, and employees walk around in shirts that say, you make my chimichanga. Unfortunately, Woody and Victoria Johnson aren't alive today. And the Johnson family actually sold Macayos to a company called Kind Hospitality. I spoke to the current CEO, Nava Singham, about Macayos' claim to have invented the chimichanga. Well, our story and was sticking to it is, you know, Woody, the founder of Macayos in 1946, he had a, a restaurant and, you know, being extremely busy that day, he was, you know, putting together a burrito and, and accidentally dropped the burrito in a, in a deep fryer, right? And chimichanga, but, but, you know, trying to figure out what to do with that burrito, right? He served it to his people that worked around there and they all loved it. But Woody isn't the only one to claim he accidentally dropped a burrito in a fryer, thus making the chimichanga. You know, he and I would often jest with each other as to who made the first chimichanga and how it was made, and my mother makes it better than your mother type of thing. <laughs> and 
and, and that's just the way it goes, and it goes that way now. That's Carlota Flores, the owner of El Chato, a restaurant in Tucson, Arizona. So you've got Macayos to the north and El Chato to the south. I couldn't travel to see her for this episode, so we spoke briefly over the phone. She claimed that El Chato, which opened in 1922, is the oldest family-run Mexican restaurant in the country, and that her tia, Monica Flynn, also accidentally dropped a burrito in a fryer. It all happened one evening when little Carlota and her cousins were in the home with Tia Monica. And everyone, when she'd have been in bed, and she kind of, her kitchen was already basically clean, but the deep fryer was still pretty hot, and the burrow fell in it. She went to say a cuss word and changed it because there was all children underhand, and she was going to use an explosive cuss word and kind of changed it. The chimichanga is how it was named. Yes, you heard that right, folks. The chimichanga got its name, apparently, because sweet Tia Monica was just trying not to lose her cool and slip out a bad word in front of the kids. Is that a story or what? I asked Carlota of El Chato and Nava of Macayos their thoughts on the chimichanga as the state food. Nava is 100% sold on the idea that the chimichanga should be legally declared our state food. He said it will bring pride to Arizonans whenever they see a chimichanga on a menu to know that it started here. Yes, I think that it needs to be a legally proposed state food item, the chimichanga, Arizona, the chimichanga state. No, kidding. <laughs> but seriously, on a, on a serious note, I think, I think Arizona's staple food should be the chimichanga, yes. And for Carlota? She said she loved the idea that the chimichanga isn't a self-explanatory word. She said it's something that people have to ask about when they hear, so it'll prompt conversation. It's just fun, and fun is needed, laughter's needed, so I'm all for it. This all makes sense, of course, but I have to admit, when I started this episode and contemplated the idea of a state food, I felt like it was kind of strange and unimportant. I just didn't get the point. So I spoke with two professors at Arizona State University who convinced me otherwise. Uh, so when we talk about food and identity, um, you know, there's a lot of, di- well, first of all, there's a lot of different ways that people can talk about their identity. And so you can talk about um, your gender, your race, your religion, um, your cultural upbringing. That's Ryan Stotts a lecturer at Arizona State University who teaches classes on food and culture and the ethics of eating and more. Yup, academia, here we come. We're going there. So I think food is a really basic part of our lives, right? So we have to to eat to survive. But because it's so much a part of our lives, sometimes we forget that um, our food, that we're actively making decisions about what food we're going to eat every time we eat. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you are what you eat, right? I know I've seen it all over the place, but mostly pertaining to diet plans and weight loss. Well, interestingly enough, Ryan told me that saying actually has been morphed from a French scholar named Jean Briat Savarin. And just full transparency, apologies if I am saying that wrong. But Briat Savarin actually said, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you what you are. 
he was one of the first people to really introduce this concept of food and identity. It's also just not about what they eat, but about all the actions around eating as well. So, you know, um, one of the things I learn about people about what they eat um, is um, their sense of adventure, their sense of openness to other cultures, so if they're willing to try things that they've never tried before and things like that. All of this information about what food can say about a culture had me thinking. Yes, Arizona is home to the chimichanga, but in general, most people just assume our state food would be some sort of Hispanic dish, which makes sense. Until the end of the Mexican-American War in 1848, Arizona was originally part of Mexico. And a 2018 population estimate from the U.S. Census puts Arizona's population at 31.4% Hispanic or Latino. But what does all this say about our culture? Yes, it makes complete sense that Mexican food would be the very first thing that comes to your mind when you think about the Southwest. Or not so much Mexican food, but food with Mexican ingredients, I would say. That's Ileana Baeza Lope a professor at Arizona State University who teaches a course called Mexican Food in the Southwest. Well, if you think about it, it actually reflects um, the transborder experience. What you see and what you have in restaurants as Mexican food, for example, that would be our fast food or that would be an interpretation of our street food in Mexico. Because if you think about actual Mexican food, oh my God, that is super, super difficult to achieve very specific ingredients. Um, Mexican food requires a lot of time. It's not something that you can just put together like fajitas, for example. Ileana said a lot of the ingredients required for traditional Mexican food that she grew up with aren't available in Arizona, even when you go to specialized stores. I asked her about the chimichanga specifically. So I would say that chimichangas Um, I wouldn't call them Mexican food. I would call them Mexican-inspired food. Just think about this. Somebody comes from Mexico to live in the United States, okay? And you miss your food, you miss your culture, and you would like to reproduce it, okay, um, wherever you are. Now, um, if you go to uh, Food City, for example, which is the Mexican market, okay, um, there is a limited selection of the actual ingredients that you're going to find in order to um, cook that food. So, in order to reproduce something that resembles what your grandmother used to make when you were a child and you miss very much, you're going to have to substitute ingredients, yes? And in the case of restaurants, they have to substitute ingredients and also cooking fashions in order to also appeal the American public, the non-Mexican public, in a way. So that is the reason why I would say that whatever Mexican food or Mexican-inspired food that you find here in the Southwest is, in the end, an example, an embodiment of the transporter experience. Using food as a way to sort of transport back in time to fond memories is something I heard repeated a lot. For example, that other professor, Ryan, she said she's from Ohio, the Buckeye State. So when she attends parties or gatherings here in the Valley, she'll actually bring treats called Buckeyes, which are these little balls of peanut butter fudge dipped in chocolate. Ileana said growing up in Mexico, mealtime was synonymous with family time. In Mexican culture, food is 
a predominant thing. It doesn't matter what's going on, there's always going to be food. If there is a party, there's going to be food. If there is a funeral, there's going to be food. If um, the family needs to get together in order to discuss um, a crisis, there's always going to be food. I mean, food is very, very important for us as Mexican. And the most important is the stories that um, emerge when you're together in the kitchen um, cooking any dish. Because in Mexican culture, it's very common that um, children, teenagers, adults, um, they are going to be in the very same space. They're going to be sharing the same activities. Through food, people bond and share stories. It's a way of preserving culture and celebrating life. And if we accept what Ileana says about food here not necessarily being Mexican food, but more so Mexican-inspired food, a cuisine fusion of sorts, then in a way, what that's celebrating is Arizona's diversity. I wouldn't, I don't think that I, I don't think that I would be able to place one specific food as the definition of the food in this area. But the fact that I cannot place one specific food in a way is a positive thing for me because it talks about this enormous diversity and this enormous richness that um, we have here in the Southwest. I really think that the fact that we don't have one specific food is a positive thing. Now all I can think about is chimichangas, so thank you, Taylor. So, any fun takeaways on this episode? Well, I think honestly I just really enjoyed speaking with Ileana Bayasalope from ASU. Like I had said in this episode, most people do assume that if we had a state food, it would be something Hispanic, but digging sort of deeper into that and what that means in the transporter experience, that part for me was really illuminating. And I remember at one point she mentioned how powerful it was for her to see her students who were Mexican-American or Chicano come to understand the significance of food. When students realize that they are part of that culture, that is amazing because they realize that they have a place in the world and more so than a place in the world, a place in the United States. I completely agree, and I really appreciate that deeper look into Arizona's culture. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Valley 101 from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. What are you thinking of our episodes so far? Tell us by leaving us a rating and review on your podcast app, or find us on Twitter at Valley101Pod. And as always, you can tell us your questions at valley101.azcentral.com. And if you're like us and you love food or restaurants, you can learn a lot more at dining.azcentral.com. That's it for this episode. See you next week.